Hello and welcome back to the Vacation Bible School Podcast. My name is Jason Kirk, joined as always by Emily Kirk. How are you today, Emily? Oh, I'm fine, thanks. We are gathered here today to discuss one chapter of the Bible on this podcast in which we are going back through the entire thing to find it is all a whole lot more interesting than we were led to believe as young religious people. That chapter is Exodus 12, the Passover story. Emily, can you give us the version of this story that we were given as Christian kids? I personally don't know if I was ever given a version. It was more thrown in with the plagues, and that's about all we learned about. Yeah, all we got was God is doing a heist, and this chapter is nothing but the escape route. This is literally how the people in the story are leaving Egypt. The process of making sure your running shoes are tied tight, your unleavened bread in your hand, you're ready to bolt, you got your snack kit. But I don't think we even learned about all of that part. Yeah. It was more just uh, (laughs) the plagues happened, they left Egypt. Yeah, I mean, I'm adding details here just because reading it back, it's like, oh, right, we never really. I think the only context we got for like Passover as a tradition beyond just literally how the Israelites left Egypt was Jesus does the Last Supper and it was kind of like a Passover Seder meal. And that was kind of it. Yeah. So as people who were raised in the Christian tradition and are most familiar with it, Christian stuff, we are so familiar with it that we feel completely comfortable affirming parts, laughing at parts, rejecting parts, taking it as individual things that are easy for us to parse because they're so familiar. When it comes to the Jewish part of the story, which is a ridiculous thing to say, because to this point in the story, it has all been a Jewish story. We are very much guests in this house. It's a little less familiar for us. So when we look at a story like Exodus 12, that is very much about Jewish identity, Jewish heritage, and Jewish tradition, coming from the Christian perspectives, it's not super easy to know what to do with it. There are evangelical churches that turn their Easter meals into Passover seders. You see Christian churches throughout time wrestling with leavened bread versus unleavened bread, things from Passover that they debate whether Christians should keep this tradition going, that tradition going. Is this our thing? Is this their thing? The Great Schism, one of the biggest events in religious history, the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church. One of the reasons these two churches split, leavened bread versus unleavened bread, something that was established many hundreds of years earlier in Exodus 12 as part of a newly developing version of an entirely different religion. Where last we left our heroes, Moses and Aaron and them are springing the Israelites out of Egypt, thanks to God obliterating the entire Egyptian pantheon right in front of Pharaoh. The final plague, as Moses warned the Pharaoh, will be the death of all the firstborns of every species in Egypt. So God says, here's the plan, Moses and Aaron, my confidants, in a little bit more detail. This is not just going to be the coup de Gracie, oh boy. <laughs> the culmination of this plan. This is also a thing for you to remember. This is now the first month on your calendar. On the 14th day of this month, you will remember what we are doing here tonight. Here are the details of the ceremony that you will follow in order to remember this night. This is very important to God. God gives more details on this than he did on the building of the ark. Yeah, this is something that I spent more time reading through multiple times because this is the first time I feel like we're seeing something that happened in a span of hours be drawn out through almost an entire chapter in the Bible where everything else like you'll get a hundred years in a few verses so to me this was obviously extremely important because they're listing things out step by step yeah I mean in our last episode on the the beginning of the Moses story we literally cover 400 years in a verse or two and it's not even mentioned that we did so whereas now the steps of this ritual are so important to God that we're going beat by beat and like you were saying the religion that has formed from these texts was clearly not fully formed up until 
until the point of the plagues. Right now, the night of Passover, it's almost like there is an entire religion being born right, right. before our eyes. Now we're creating rules for this religion and, and things to follow along with. And that internal tension in Genesis, the God of nature, the God of the garden, and then the God of order, the God of rules. I think we see from this point forward in Exodus, God learning to compromise those two things in order to communicate with his people. So the actual feast, the tradition itself, a lot of it is about mobility, nomadic heritage, being ready to move, staying on your feet, staying alert, being ready for liberation because it's coming, because God said it's coming. Yeah, so all of these rules and all of these steps that he's creating and laying out for Moses and Aaron to tell all of the Israelites is to get to this point as quickly as possible. So I think a few ways to talk about this stuff. You have, obviously, this is a big important part of a critical world religion. For observant Jews, the Passover story is a story of God remembering and preserving his people and his people in turn remembering him. There is the literary way to look at it. Literally, what did God tell the Israelites to do while preparing to leave Egypt? Then there is, you know, sort of the VBS way, which is what are the weird parts and how are they even weirder than what's on paper? And then there's culturally, how do Jews who might or might not be all that religiously observant relate to Passover as an ongoing cultural tradition each year? First up, what happens in the story? So throughout Exodus 12, we're basically given this list that tells the Israelites exactly how they're to prepare for this exodus from Egypt. They start with each house is going to find a lamb. And if the lamb is too much for your household, then you're going to share with your neighbors. Uh, the lamb is supposed to be one year old and healthy, and you are to slaughter it at twilight on the 14th day. You're going to take some of the blood from the lamb with hyssop and paint it above your doorframe and on the sides. And this is the indication that God will pass over your house when he's inflicting this last plague on the Egyptians. That night, they're going to eat the meat that has to be roasted over the fire. It's not to be boiled or eaten raw, and it's going to be made with bitter herbs and yeast, free bread, because there's no yeast allowed in the house for seven days up to this point. And then when they finally get around to eating the meal, they have to do it with their cloak tucked in, their loins girded, their sandals on, and their staff in hand, because they're basically ready to flee at this point. Eating in sprinter's stance. Right, they're eating quickly. Facing out the door. And then if they have any meat lift left over, they're not to leave it behind. It needs to be burned, and that's it. But we're given this whole list of rules that they're following, and this is the first time that we're seeing this much detail in any tradition. It's kind of like God is teaching a nomadic people who have been part of a civilization for 400 years how to be nomads again. He's doing it step by step. So the leavened food, the unleavened thing, there's a lot going on there. One interpretation that I think makes a lot of sense is the idea that leavened food is a little bit less natural than unleavened food. Because remember back in Genesis where it is bad to make a tower out of bricks instead of just stones. That is a corruption of nature via technology. So not only are we talking about portability, we're also talking about naturalism. Exodus 12, 23, at midnight, God says he won't let the destroyer strike your house if you follow the blood rule. Who's the destroyer? Where'd this guy come from? This is some sort of a reference to like some kind of ancient plague demon or angel of death or like a vestigial Semitic pantheon member or something that made it past a very monotheist priest editor who usually tries to make all that stuff fold into just one character. There are some theories that this guy, the destroyer, is also referenced later in the Bible. In Revelation, the king of the... <clears throat> Armored scorpion locust horses is called Abaddon the Destroyer, Angel of the Abyss. There are some wild theories by actual grown-ups that Jesus is Abaddon 
the Destroyer. Jehovah's Witnesses teach this, based on Abaddon's armored scorpion locust horses only attacking people who don't like Jesus, and on Jesus being described in Revelation as a bloody sword-spitting warlord, because Revelation's author is on the greatest drugs of all time. However, if Jesus is Abaddon, then Abaddon can't be the Destroyer, because that would make Jesus the Destroyer, and if you think Jesus would kill Egyptian babies, then you are stupid. <laughs> Most people assume Abaddon is Satan, but we talked about them in episode one, the, the kind of people who think every single villain in the entire Bible is Satan. This is Abaddon Erasure. If you have played a Diablo game, you know there are all sorts of demons and devils that you have to defeat, not just one. Anyway, the Destroyer. <laughs> is, back, back to the original topic. The Destroyer is this like scary attack dog. God is just revealed. He has a thing called the Destroyer. Why would the God of the Flood need a whole separate attack dog? And there's no description of the Destroyer <laughs> None either. None whatsoever. So exactly. There's a lot of liberties being taken here. <laughs> I could say whatever I want about exactly. the Destroyer as long as he doesn't come to my home. <laughs> So, uh, Exodus twelve thirty, the destroyer arrives. There was a loud cry throughout Egypt. There was not a house without someone dead. So God has done it. He did just what he told Moses he was going to do way back during their first meeting when God was just an ember on Mount Sinai. God eliminated life as revenge for life the Egyptians eliminated. Eye for an eye, sins of the father visited upon the son, law of the desert, General Sherman God has made Egypt howl. One of the world's mightiest empires is broken, brutalized, maimed, humbled, begging for mercy and pleading for enslaved people to liberate themselves the fuck out of here. So here's the thing about the destroyer God warned us about. God did a Thanos and did it himself anyway. The Bible says the Lord struck down all the firstborn of Egypt. There was no destroyer. God killed all those people. It's like, did you ever watch the movie Split? I don't know. <laughs> it's that M. Night Shyamalan movie Okay. where he has all the multiple personalities. Uh -huh. Yeah, so this is what we're seeing in God. He's like the good guy most of the time, but then he's got these like deep-seated dark characters within him. Is this like Dexter? No. Okay. Because the guy, it's like, you just have to watch it. Okay. Well, I think you're onto something there because I think what we have seen to this point in the Bible is a bunch of polytheism crammed into a monotheism. A whole bunch of gods jammed under one umbrella. You have the somber space god of Genesis 1. You have the weird, wacky uncle of the rest of Genesis. You have whatever was wrestling with Jacob. You have the forgotten sea monster, the mischievous snake, the angels. Who is God talking to in Genesis 1? All the gods of Egypt. All those people talking to Abraham that are kind of like God. Those dudes walking around Sodom that are kind of like God. You have all these godlike beings that someone then came along and kind of jammed under one personality, but like kind of didn't. So this attack dog destroyer, there is one idea that God made him up just to make sure the Israelites would actually follow through with the Passover stuff. Because the Israelites are like, hooray, God is here. And God is like, all right, you got to do this. And they're like, Ah, oh, God's nice. He wouldn't do that. So God's like, if you don't listen to me, I'm going to sit bad Santa, the destroyer. Well, you know, like, like you're, you're like, your parent get, tries to get you to do good stuff by telling you the good Santa is coming. Right. So God's like, the anti-tooth fairy is coming. He's coming to take your meat. He's coming to, <laughs> he's going to put extra teeth in your mouth and rob oh, you. He's going to give you cavities. <laughs> so the destroyer has struck. God has struck. Egypt has been humbled, flattened by plague after plague after plague. God has humiliated 
humiliated the entire pantheon and the Pharaoh himself. All of Egypt, deprived of food and water and light in their own children, begged the Israelites to leave. But when they're leaving, the Egyptians see the Israelite favorably. That is, I think, one of the most fascinating parts of the whole story to me, because all of this horrible stuff just happened, and you would think that they would just be terrified of the Israelites at this point, because they're seeing that their God has the power to destroy them to this this extent, but they're kind of not afraid at the same time, which is kind of a miracle. Well, maybe they're realizing the humanity of these people that they have enslaved. Maybe they're just happy that they're leaving. Yeah. <laughs> maybe they're literally looking favorably on Take the- all my jewels. Take all my gold. So God prophesied, we talked about it in the last episode, that the Egyptians would shove gold and silver into the hands of the Israelites on their way out. So right now, I would like you to log on to Facebook.com, tag all of your uncles, and you tell them, God said slavery reparations are biblical. So the Israelites leave, and it is Bible math time. (laughs) Emily, you talked in, in our first episode about the ages of the Bible and how there's some wacky numbers going on. Yeah, most of the numbers don't make much. 969 year old human so here the israelites leave there are 600,000 men that would mean if you're counting children old people women that's got to be something like 2 million people which would be one of the biggest countries on earth at the time probably more people than there were in real life in all of palestine already arranged as an army it calls them the companies of the lord companies divisions a military unit the other thing here is how in the world did egypt enslave this many people and feed them and all of these things. That's the part I don't understand and where the numbers clearly don't make sense. Also remember, they came down as just 70 people here. Right. 400 years earlier. Right, yeah. There would be evidence if 2.5 million people had all walked across Sinai. There there really might be heat signatures visible from space that we talked about (laughs) in the Moses episode. There would have been entire civil wars from this many people. Whole cities would have formed. There would have been an Israelite empire from Egypt to Turkey. If the entire population of metro baltimore just got up and walked 500 miles to indianapolis somebody would notice we noticed when 50 football players did this well and they wouldn't have been able to be enslaved so easily by the egyptians if there were that many because they could have just got up and left if there were really that many people and here's how we know that's true in real life ramesses's army was only about a hundred thousand a sixth of the reported Israelite army. If you have 600,000 men, you have a massive army. 600,000 might have been a bigger army than the entire Persian Empire mustered hundreds of years later. If Moses had a Roman Empire-sized army and had it 1,500 years before Rome's peak, he wins the civilization game on turn 150. This is one thing I am... Nerd. One thing I am authorized to speak on here. But we'll see. (laughs) They would not have needed fire and water magic to destroy Egypt's army. They could have just stood there and swung sticks. But we'll see later in the Torah, Moses' army was scared of the town of Jericho, which in real life might have been abandoned by then, per archaeologists. Now, we do not bring this up to say, ha ha ha, Bible wrong. Not really a thing we do here. It's just that, as with the ages in Genesis, it's possible we've mistranslated the numbers. It's possible we don't know exactly how to scale the numbers they're talking about. You can find interpretations out there that it's something like 
6,000 men. So more like 25,000 people. And that would feel pretty realistic if you start with just seven over 400 years. Yeah. You can find a whole span well shy of millions of people. Well, and we have to remember, too, that this was not a time of modern medicine. So there are probably a lot more miscarriages and things like that taking place where you're not able to reproduce in the same way. Yeah, we, we absolutely know that it would be even more difficult in this age to reproduce at that dramatic of a uptick. The rest of Exodus, God's handing out more rules and stuff. There is one verse I would like to spotlight. Exodus 12, 48. God has just obliterated all of Egypt because they were harming the Israelites. We now get a glimpse at a world in which God is the God of not just the Israelites. Because he says, any circumcised people can partake in Passover celebrations henceforth. The God of Israel is hinting at reclaiming the throne of the entire world. Right. And he's very clear, too, on making a point of which uncircumcised people cannot partake, and meaning all of them. But he points out specific groups of people as well. Even those that come in to help the Israelites or whatever, they're just not able to partake in Passover if they're not circumcised. Again, it's very important to register your firearm. So as with anything else, at this point in the Bible, there are mythological influences beyond just the history. We talked last time about how there is no way to know if a nation like the Israelites actually rebelled and broke free of Egypt. Really no way to know how much actual history goes into this story. What we do know is that parts of this story were likely around even before it got written down. It's possible this story is a storified, codified version of a thing the ancient Canaanites, Hebrews were already doing anyway. A harvest ceremony about using blood to ward off demons. And you can find lots of rabbis and Jewish scholars who will say this. If you'd like to know more about this, you can Google A-P-O-T-R-O-P-A-I-C Passover. That long word I spelled out is a word for a ceremony meant to ward off demons. If this is accurate, then at some point someone could have just said, hey, we could merge that tradition we've been doing with the Egypt story, our national origin story, and the story of the founding of our codified religion. Particularly, sacrificing a lamb is thought to be an ancient nomadic Canaanite thing to do during springtime. And a lamb sacrifice is one of the keys of the Passover story. It's kind of like Easter being like a Christianized merging of a bunch of older stuff. It's possible Passover ties in influences from outside Canaan or Egypt as well. Take this or leave it, but there is a highly possible Babylonian influence on the Passover story, and I'm always going to point that out because as an editor, I always wonder about how much influence the editors of the Bible had, seeing as they likely did most of their work while in Babylon. Well, and we see the editing part come into play too, because when they're listing out the details of this ritual that they're now a part of, some of it is written out twice. So it's kind of either two people telling this story or two people giving you these rules. Yeah, I feel like as we go, the multi-document editor kind of gets better and better at it. The best example of editing in the Bible will come in our next episode. As for the Babylon stuff, the Passover story was possibly a version of a Babylonian harvest festival for the glory of Marduk, the one god who towers over all the others, the all-father, the big guy, very close in some ways to the Bible's big guy. The Babylonian festival involves more than a week of preparation, just like the Passover ceremony. It occurs in the same month as Passover, is in a memory of the big guy god's aquatic victory over an evil army and the big guy god humbling a human king. We have not quite got to the big guy god's aquatic victory of the human king, but that is coming next episode. Also, the Assyrians adopted this ceremony from their conquered Babylonians. The Assyrians were the 
dominant power at the time lots of Exodus was most likely being written, and the Torah's authors considered the Assyrians and Babylonians very similar anyway, seeing as Genesis shows them both coming from Nimrod. There he is again. So here's a concept, the belief that there are many gods, but one totally towers above all others. It's a version of polytheism that functionally feels like monotheism. It's a religion in which you have one super powerful god, but there's also a destroyer. There are also angels. There's also a Satan. And there are also other aspects of God that feel like entirely different personalities. This could describe Marduk. It could describe the God of Genesis, of Exodus, and most of the rest of the Hebrew Bible, at least until some priest nerd tried to wrangle it all into one story. It's quite possible that the Bible that included a creation sea monster God and a Loki snake God and Egyptian plague opponent gods and Job's accuser God and the Jacob wrestler God was a work that someone tried to cram into monotheism because that was the more popular religion. For more about this Babylon ceremony, you can Google A-K-I-T-U. I've just given up on pronouncing things. I'm just spelling things from here on out. That's probably a good idea. So that's stuff behind the text. Once it was written, rabbis and theologians spent thousands of years debating how best to apply it all to ongoing yearly life. And then a bunch of Christians showed up and decided to join in on that debate. After a break, we will talk about one big way the story carries on to this day. Support for VBS happens in a couple different ways. You can throw us a few bucks at supportvbs.com, however many you'd like. By the time you visit that link, there might be bonuses for donors and or merch. But all Canon Bible Book episodes will always be free either way. Also, for no bucks at all, you can follow us at VBS Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Subscribe to our newsletter at jasonkirk.substack.com and leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. We are now joined by guest pastors, a whole a whole passel of them. That sounds like pass. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just stick with passels, fine. Uh, for the first time ever, we have three at once. We have five microphones going. You know, so at, at the beginning of the show, we talked the background for Passover. Let's sim ahead like 2,000 years, and let's talk about Passover in the modern world. Whether, whether it lines up perfectly with scriptural inspiration or not, cool. Uh, we are joined by three experts on the subject. Let's intro in, let's, let's call it ABC order. Would that work? I, I I am Alex Kirshner, longtime member of uh, the Jason Kirk Extended Internet family and college football writer and editor. Thrilled to be here. Talk about matzo ball soup. It's an honor. Um, I'm the second rabbi here on Twitter's Bobby Big Wheel, but my uh, government name's Aaron. So that should give you a hint on, you know, how I've been do- uh, doing this Passover thing for more than three decades now. Charlotte Wilder. A lot of people don't know I'm Jewish because my last name is Wilder, but I am. And uh, I'm at Fox Sports, but had the deep privilege of working with both Jason and Alex when we were all at SB Nation, which feels like 30,000 years ago, as I was saying. But uh, I'm very psyched to be here, and I have a lot of Passover stories to share. Excellent. And Aaron was also briefly at SB Nation as a freelance college football writer. So at Can one point, that? It, there might have been a point where all four of us were there. I don't know. I'm the only we got the band one. back together again. Yeah, Emily has has yet to put. Our daughter has, though. Yeah. Evie has published there. I feel so. very left yeah. out. I know yeah, nothing. Evie- 
Yeah, by line. Yeah. So Passover. As someone who has never done any Passover things, other than I think actually I think we probably did during like a Protestant Easter pageant at some point, just like very very confidently. Oh yeah, we we can do this. Let's do some Passover stuff. But I've never actually done it for real and legit. I would guess that Passover, just a, a modern Jewish family, it is a little bit religious, a little bit cultural, a little bit family, like all that stuff mixed together. Is that is that about right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's you with your family. I mean, so you have like the Passover Seder, which is the first two nights. And that's like you and your family and like extended family normally having like this really long meal where you have to read a book during it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you get all the spiritual and liturgical stuff thrown in. But what all Passover also is, and what I really remember the most about it, is that it's eight days where um, you have some, depending on how observant you are, you have some severe dietary restrictions. Now, I grew up um, conservative Jewish, which is like, for all you, you Christian listeners out there, are, you know, maybe are Orthodox or maybe like the, the Southern Baptists and <laughs> uh, the Reform is like a, a Unitarian or something. So maybe conservative is like a Methodist or something. Okay. So, it somewhat seriously and my parents like a lot of observant Jews didn't you know so as part of no leavened bread they also wouldn't allow any corn products to be consumed during the eight days of Passover so I knew before like any of you guys saw those documentaries that there was like corn syrup in everything because I couldn't <laughs> anything that tasted good for eight days it's like the two <laughs> things i remember that like i was allowed to eat that i liked was because we lived in like a jewish town like the supermarket had basically like mexico because it was made with the sugar right. instead of corn syrup so i was like oh wow the, the coke actually tastes a little better during passover and i just remember ruffles for whatever reason didn't have corn syrup in them so it's like i basically subsisted off of coke and ruffles for eight <laughs> you know same doing... I, I didn't realize i was uh i was actually complying but <laughs> yeah we're just being a member of the tribe jason yeah thank, thank yeah, you for yeah so um yeah you, you so and like so when i was a kid i'd basically do uh the atkins diet for eight days <laughs> uh, you know when you're a kid you love junk food and it's just taken away from you i mean i hated it so much i remember as soon as i got a car the first thing i did the first pass where i had a car is i went to wendy's and got a bacon cheeseburger out of spite <laughs> i'm into that face that's like the jewish goth face <laughs> We used to joke about doing that. We were like, do you guys want to go get lobster rolls and then bacon cheeseburgers for Passover this year? So it's like a real a real Jewish rebellion thing. It gets <laughs> yeah. dark maybe about three, four days in when you start dressing up your matzah like you would do like pizza. Yes. But, oh, yeah. But you would do it with matzah, which is like, I mean, I, we're among friends here. I mean, we can say matzah sucks. It is it's not terrible. That's, and I think Nobody that's the likes point. Matzo. I think that's kind of the point, so, I guess. So but, dressing I mean, it up gets, like it, pizza, is this like unleavened pizza rolls? Is that what we're talking about? No, yeah. so, no, no, no. Ma it's tomato sauce on cardboard. That's what it is. <laughs> okay. With with like with like some kind of like parv cheese. I don't even know what parv means. I just know it's like Jewish permissible. Uh, it means it means kosher for Passover, but yeah, I have no yeah. idea why. It means no corn syrup in the cheese. Anyway, it's just it just isn't good, and it gets grim after a few days. Yeah. I have a really controversial take, which is that I kind of like matzah. Oh. I it was the one time of year that I eat margarine because my grandmother because it spreads easier. So I would eat disgusting amounts of margarine spread on tomato for breakfast. And I just really liked it. But then, yeah, by like day five, you feel like you live in a cardboard box made of matzo, which is also cardboard. So it's just, it, it does get dark. The thing that I've never been able to wrap my head around with matzo is that 
that it sucks so much, though I, I respect your take on it, Charlotte, but I think it sucks so much for me. And yet matzo, <laughs> matzo balls, the, the version that is like molded into spheres and put into chicken soup is among my like top five foods. Well, that's, I mean, and, anything and, tastes good if it's mixed with rendered chicken fat. Yeah, man, you can, you know, I yeah. would eat a cinder block if you made it like that, you know? That's a fair yeah, point, yeah. A matzo ball is carbs and fat, and there's nothing better <laughs> in the world. A few, few things better. Yeah. You really have to have matzo ball soup if you haven't. If you're not a member of the tribe and you haven't had it, you, you got to give it a go. I have to say, though, in terms of, like, the cultural religious mix, Passover was always my favorite because my cousins and I were all together for, you know, like, a good three or four days because you have both... Both of the both we would do both seders, and my grandfather was actually a cantor in the synagogue, and our whole family was had beautiful voices, and you know had led all these services, and it was a really we our family is also conservative, but you know grew up in Baltimore. My great grandfather was also a cantor and and sort of a rabbi figure, and was at the synagogue every day, and like very observant Jews. So they were also though um, my grandfather was an opera composer, so. The music that we had, they had written and it was, they brought over from sort of, I guess, what was Moravia at the time in the 1920s. And it was just like this stunning, very secular tunes. It's only sung in two places in the U.S. now, which is in Maine, which is where my family is, and um, Baltimore. So hmm. there are these, these stunning, this stunning music that for me was such a huge part of it. But it meant that I got to be with my family singing these songs we loved and and we didn't have to go to synagogue. This was all at home. Oh, and that, that was really fun for me. Yeah, no, uh, it, it's good if, yeah, that's, wow, I had no idea you're kind of, like, I, I was doing this with a bit of Jewish royalty here. Nobody <laughs> in my family is a Jew of no, but uh, yeah, no, avoiding going to synagogue, always a, a, a plus during Passover, just because, again, for the uh, non-Jewish listeners out there, especially um, if you're a group conservative, Passover, you know, normal services can be like two hours with a lot of Hebrew in it. And this is, you know, really the pre-smartphone era. I feel like I would have liked synagogue more if I could like go on Twitter during it. But like any holiday will add at least half an hour to it. Um, <laughs> I feel like having musicians in your family who really spice up the Seder with song would rule. We didn't have that. We are not a musically inclined clan. And like Aaron was saying, like the Seder can be, if you're not singing throughout it, that thing can be a slog. Yeah, well, I mean, we don't... made up, we have like all these songs, the Hebrew version, and then we have like the joke version where Adir Who is, it's Adir Who went to the zoo, saw a monkey and a kangaroo. <laughs> like it, it goes on like that. Yeah, so it was fun. Yeah, well, I mean, w- one thing the adults have going for them though is uh, one thing the Seder really uh, involves is drinking a lot of wine. Yes. And so I, yeah. you remember... <laughs> Uh, you have at least four glasses. I think uh, members of my family certainly saw that as a minimum. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, no, I, I, you know, it's one of your first experiences as a kid. It's like, huh, they're really kind of losing their wits about um, uh, as this thing goes on, huh? I, I was you looking know? at like the, the, it seems like 14 steps is traditional. There's a glass of wine like every three or four steps. And I'm like, this holiday sounds oh, really good. It, it's 
really strange hearing that coming from a family that didn't drink at all. Well, I mean, I had family members who were alcoholics, but in general, my immediate family, we were non-drinkers. Like no sanctioned drinking. None. And then here we this have a religious thing. holiday where like, yeah, let's, yeah. we're going to have wine. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. a much better idea. I feel like this is an area where Jews have a leg up. Light but sanctioned drinking, at least in like conservative American Jewry, it is a thing from a young age. I mean, for yeah. boys, I think it starts at eight days old because they make you drunk sometimes during uh, circumcision. The thing, like, yeah. Uh, but then there's like at every Saturday service, there's like a nice old man, usually named Alvin or Sam, holding uh, like <laughs> yes. a, a, tray, a tray of like white and red uh, and grape juice. Would they do but, it? Would they do the, like at your center? Would they do it in like those little yeah, those little glasses? Plastic glasses and you don't realize they're yeah. shot glasses until you're like 15 years. Like the first time I ever see a shot glass is in high school. I'm like, wait, well, did they get these from the synagogue? No, I, I actually, when I was 15, uh, my friend and I stole a tray and we drank them behind the synagogue and got drunk and he threw up, but I That was my the first cool. time, Aaron, that was the first time I got drunk too. I was like 13 or 14 at Passover and I had a bunch of Manischewitz and I crawled under the table and I tied all the adult shoelaces together. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom was like, oh, we are so screwed. <laughs> yeah, Manischewitz, uh, for again, you know, for the uh, non-Jewish listeners, it is, first of all, pretty low alcohol for wine and like very sweet. It's a, it's training wheels wine. Mm-hmm. Um, also, another thing that like is really different with Christians is like, you know, you guys are talking about how, you know, really religious family in Christianity you know, might not drink. That's not the case for really religious Jews. Like they <laughs> take the drink, like they take this seriously. Like I've been to Orthodox weddings and they will literally have like bottles of liquor on the table. The tish, what? right? Isn't it called the tish or something? I've, I've never, I all of my cousins who have had weddings or most of them were before I turned 21. So I never got to do the tish, but before the wedding, the groom just gets plastered in at least certain Jewish denominations. Really? My, I, I have not I just, heard of that. Or is that just my family and we have an issue? Yeah. I know, I'm like, Kirsch, um, we should take this offline after. No, um, I like I tweet every every year. My bit is that is I take a picture of like one of the later pages of the Seder where it says drink the fourth cup of wine. And I'm like, Passover was the original drinking game. It, it kind of is. It's like there are really rules about it. When, yeah. when Jason and I got married, someone had given us a bottle of non-alcoholic wine uh-huh. or champagne. And it was like, I at that up to that point I had never drank like I was almost 30 years old before I had a drink which is weird I know but yeah so my grandma finds this bottle sitting on the table and she picks it up and she marches over to somebody I don't even know who and she goes we don't drink this in our family <laughs> and she put it on the ground under the table a non-alcoholic champagne yes, yeah <laughs> this is the uh the appearance of evil avoid even the appearance of evil yeah. I, I guess that's amazing no Emily that's fine it's smart it just means you have way more brain cells than the rest of <laughs> even the kids like at passover seder there's a a bit to it where you put your pinky finger into the red wine and i should be a better jew why we do it for the plagues thank you and yet you dip them you know and you dip it on the plate and you like leave like spots and you know you're allowed to suck your finger after that and eight-year-old you is allowed to to get that tiny tiny little buzz yeah you get a little baby buzz going yeah for sure yeah it seems like Passover, there is a lot of stuff. Like if you do the complete program, oh, is this yeah. is this recommended to do like all 800,000 steps to this thing or, or, no. or do you pick and choose? I mean, like a, 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 the continuum again of like you have the reform, the Unitarians who maybe do like a half hour and you're done 
and then like you have the unorthodox ones who read every page in the uh the book they use for it's called the Haggadah and then like I'm sure that there I'm sure that theirs take like four or five hours or something there are like fun bits to it as well you guys remember uh the the four sons this is the one I really wanted to ask about this (laughs) the four I love the four so in Judaism there are four types of son uh smart stupid (laughs) evil and baby um and you have to learn how to explain Passover to all of them and then like the, you have like one of the kids around the table be either again smart stupid evil baby um, I always went for evil because he's the really fun one um, and it's he's kind of this snide condescending guy and you tell him the Judaism teaches you that for your evil son you have to yell at him in front of your own and it's it's a great bit you may set his teeth on edge which is basically like you're supposed to curb stomp your son until he understands Passover don't we have a euphemism for the dumb son it's like the son it's who, the one who, who does, does not, not know ask to, does not know how to no, ask does not yes. know how to ask a question yeah is, is the one, it simple the one, is simple the yeah, dumb simple, one the, the uh, dumb shoot. Simple. All right. the one who doesn't know how to ask i mean you could i take that as baby you could also take it as very stupid um <laughs> but I'm, I'm trying to be generous i always like the one who does not know how to ask the question there was something very very sweet about that but in my family my mom was always the smart one and my uncle who was her younger brother was had to read the dumb one and that was just like a bit that never got old so in our so even though there are no notable jews in my family like the rabbi at our synagogue had actually been a pretty prominent one and uh his grandson jonathan silverman you might remember him from weekend at bernie's and the single guy uh, oh. so his grandfather was a synagogue and so like he wrote the haggadahs that like everyone used in our area the the one who's too simple like he just had the most dumbfounded look on his face in like the illustrated haggadah where it just he had like his finger in his mouth like oh what's going on and he's a very small and very sweet looking so that's why i thought of him as a baby mm. so it's like a it's like a little play yeah it's a little it's, yeah like there are little plays throughout and like their song like it, it is kind of almost like a little review show that you do with your family <laughs> that's so true oh my god <laughs> extremely true there's songs there are acts there's a thing where everyone has to run around and try to find something it is very much i think every family kind of has their own bits that go with it at least my family we were always into just like sort of the joke aspect of it like the jokes you told every year are the same jokes every year but they're just as important as like the actual written Haggadah so we have jokes that we'll do instead of reading one of the pages like we by the time you get to even the 13th page you're like oh my god when can we eat so we sort of speed up we did like a lot of the beginning pages and then we were like okay we gotta get to dinner and then we would eat and then we would just like sing a bunch of songs and then it was dessert and then it was over yeah I mean like my, my dad would lead it and just you know you could tell over the course of the night especially he's had more wine like more pages get skipped in that thing. yeah the further you get on in it you know the way you'll have kind of like a good bit in it and then you'll have like four pages that are just blocks of hebrew and like at the start of the thing it's like all right we gotta do this stuff and then by the end it's like oh let's get to singing how good yeah get out of here at some point you got a break for the hunt for the afikoman yes a critical part of passover now what is so, this i'm not sure that it has any real religious significance it probably does but i think it's like the bone that you throw to your small children uh yeah. so that they like if, if you so sit relax. still you might get like you get to stretch your legs and maybe get a prize it's 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 exciting they hide a piece <laughs> of matzah uh which is i mean i don't think anyone really wants to eat that piece of matzah unless unless you just love matzah but i don't even like even no, sorry, no, you're no. not going to put margarine no, on no. at dinner yeah right. meat at dinner so so you can't put anything on it at dinner so it's just a plain piece of of, 
unleavened bread. And it's usually wrapped in like uh, a yeah. piece of cloth or like yeah, a special you know, matzo yeah. house. And it's just hidden in the house and all the kids go and find it. And then like, you know, whoever finds it gets like $5 from your uncle or something like that. I was really bad about this. Like I, I found the Afikoman and I wasn't satisfied with the prize one year. And I just let my uncle, the poor man, have it. I was like, I was like, I wanted more than this little bouncy ball. <laughs> oh, go. Go we, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but it was always hidden the same place for us. So it got to oh. we were like, are you guys, <laughs> we were like, no, are like, you even trying? Like it's in the Russian literature section of the bookcase. We know that. Yeah. For my parents, especially because like, there'd be a lot of kids running around and we, you, they could tell like, you know, you can only make them sit still for so long. So I think my, my dad was always the one who hit it. And like, he always tried to do a good job just because like, if you keep them looking, like keep them up in about for like 20 minutes while you can catch your breath, they can get their, run their energy down. There's definitely an upside to like putting effort into hiding it. Totally. I just, I think our parents kind of gave up. So this is uh, a well-designed program. Like there's, there's wine for the grownups and then there's a, a, a scavenger hunt for the kids. The thing is, scavenger hunt, songs, first taste of wine. It's got it all. Despite what you may read, the Jews are not a very good people at subterfuge and at hiding things. Mm-hmm. And it comes up in the off coming hunt. There's just not a lot of, not a lot of creativity. People say that we, you know, we're sneaky and we can pull things over on the rest of the world. No, you can't hide a piece of unleavened bread from six, 10 year olds for 20 minutes on a Tuesday. Also, no. I'm like, we really love gossip. You think we would keep any of those juicy secrets? Are you kidding me? Um, my <laughs> old man was great at like, you know, and like he would even, like, I remember one year he put it like behind the furnace because like it was hard to get there. And so he's like, all right, that'll keep him at bay for like at least 15 minutes while they figure that out. <laughs> really, I think it's, a, it's kind of how much do you want them to tear apart your house? And I think they always sent us to, to like our basement area. So and he didn't give a shit about that. So it's like, yeah, I'm going to send you down there for 15 minutes. Good luck. <laughs> I do think in terms of one thing Jews are pretty good at, I've always thought of Judaism as sort of a, for me at least, the way I interpret it is sort of a, a code of ethics. It's like, here's how you can do your best to try to be a good person or like here's sort of a, a way to be a community or to be a family. And, and I think that um, Passover is a great example of kind of covering your bases of being like, you know what, we're going to make this, we're going to try to make this one enjoyable for you all. So like you're going to have the wine, like the kids get to hunt for something. We're all going to get together. And like, there's even a built in break for dinner where you can kind of just shoot this dish instead of having to, you know, read Hebrew the entire time, unless this is just how I'm doing it. But there's sort of like a very livable aspect to Passover that I really appreciate. Yeah, and there's like the moral of the whole thing. It's like, you know, we were once, uh, you know, in bondage, we had to flee and you should, you know, always the history of the people over the intervening 2,500 or so years since X was written it is something that you know i think it, like with judaism it's this thing where I, I feel like like the stuff you learn as a kid sticks with you so much better than like as you grow older and you learn like you go deeper into it and it's like most of this doesn't make sense but like the basic stuff you learn as a kid like about charity and healing the world and how you know you should you should treat people the way that you would want to be treated because you were once a slave that stuff is like the stuff that I think really ends up sticking no with you and i think those kind of like really basic things that anyone can understand are kind of like what we as a people have kind of carried along with us for all these thousands of years and so it kind of gets to that basic thing where it's like not teaching you the weird thing you know especially now like there's so much debate about Jesus in, like in Israel and like no one can agree on that and mm -hmm. but now but you, when you get back to the basics it is kind of like this Passover is this way to kind of bring your family together and talk about that yeah I mean the satyrs are you know they can be tiring but they're fun I mean they're like I'd say like the most indelible Jewish memories I have from my childhood are probably the satyrs um yeah. it's a tradition that you know it works see 
I had a tough time when I was a kid understanding the dichotomy between, so this is a commemoration of how our people used to be enslaved and spent years fleeing. And so the holiday recognizes that. And I would think that for that holiday, do whatever the fuck you want, right? Because like, you know, things used to be pretty bad and now they're good. I think Passover strikes, you know, the way that it doesn't do that is the dietary restriction, which I hate and is really bad and which I'm not so good about following at this point in my life, but I should. But kind of like what Charlotte mentioned about trying to make it fun for you, it sort of is like, a okay, you're fine. You get to be with your family. And some of this little stuff is like our little reminder to you, the Jews, that things used to be bad. And then they sprinkle it in with like, on most nights, you know, we have to sit forward at the table, but like, we'll throw you, throw you this tonight, you get to recline. <laughs> and it's like these constant reminders of how bad things used to be, but how good they are now. Yeah, uh, you yeah. nailed that. I think that's exactly right. I think that there, there are these, I was always very struck by, you know, the question you ask over and over is why is this night different from all other nights? And it's like, because tonight we're kind of taking a second to be like, look how far we've come. You know, and you, you say like next year in Jerusalem, which always became a joke where it's like next year in Baltimore, like next year in Maine. Um, but you know, it is this sort of like, you know, you have to remember it's about remembering. And then it's about showing you how good you might have it compared to what it used to be. I mean, I also, my family jokes a lot that it's like any Jewish holiday can be distilled down to they tried to kill us, they failed, let's eat, which like <laughs> yeah, kind of sure. is Passover's vibe a little bit. But like just from reading about it, I sort of got this sense that we have survived another year together is sort yeah. of sort of a takeaway mm-hmm. from Passover. That, no, yeah, no, that I think that really hits the heart of it. It's, we made it another year, folks. Next year, <laughs> and it's kind of weird doing that in the middle of uh, COVID this year as well. For people who are in the Northeast, I mean, April was kind of like a terrifying month because you know it's like if you're in new york it's like you heard sirens outside your window every 20 minutes doing this whole thing that kind of like you know kind of takes you the, you know almost like a timeless thing that like you know you think back to your childhood and think about all the other childhoods that were into this indelible memory and then it's just like next year we're gonna do it again and it's like oh well that's something to look forward to maybe there'll be a vaccine by then i think it also becomes as you get older and maybe this is just a function of the times that we live in but you become a little bit more acutely aware of even like the current problems that we are facing mm-hmm. um like i don't think that i've ever had a more meaningful passover than the one two aprils ago april 2019 that was five months after tree of life the shooting in pittsburgh um, yeah. my family's from pittsburgh so we're all there when you're young and you know i think a lot of american jews they're certainly not all um tend a lot of us have things pretty good and so the passover message doesn't hit quite as hard as it probably should i don't know maybe it's just a function of you know i mean we see these increased hate crimes against jews over the last few years and maybe there's more media coverage of any kind of anti-semitic or racial violence because of the way things have evolved but i think passover is much more meaningful to me now than it was when i was little partially because you're just older and smarter but partially because you learn more about you know the fact that we're not entirely out of the woods yet i totally agree i remember being younger and feeling like passover was a celebration of look how far we've come you know of being like wow things used to be really bad and you know look at my grandfather who you know his cousins were murdered in the holocaust and like wow he's here we're here i feel safe in this country and i think over the past few years especially as 
you as you look at the rise of anti-Semitism of this rhetoric, it does hit very differently where you're like, oh, the reason we remember this, the reason we celebrate this holiday every year is because it can always come back. That hate can resurface. And if you don't remember it, like you don't want to get complacent, but that definitely is a different feeling when you're in it than when you're thinking about how glad you are that you're not in it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Did you guys watch The Prince of Egypt when you were kids? <laughs> no, I never did. Maybe I, I'm a bit older, so I think that kind of aged out of that. For us, it was like we still watched the Ten Commandments in Hebrew school. Yeah, I, I remember. I think was, we watched that. Was, that was I went to a conservative synagogue. They wouldn't show us cartoons <laughs> like that, man. It was <laughs> you had to watch the four-hour Charlton Heston movie. <laughs> we watched Prince of Egypt, and we liked every, everything except the very white casting. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember it. I feel like I did. Do they, watch do they it, have white? Do they have white voice actors? Oh, yeah. 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 Sandra Bullock, yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer, Val Kilmer. San- Sandra Bullock was yeah. in the. What? Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Sandra Bullock. They had Jeff Goldblum though. Yes, Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum, Jeff Goldblum oh, played Aaron. Should have been Moses. My king. The reason Prince of Egypt sticks with me, I mean, that is a movie that really kind of gets home. They like it was bad, but it used to be bad, and you almost like it almost becomes endearing in a way because it's such like a it's a it's a movie made for kids, right? Like you know, it shows like oh, slavery is bad, but oh look at this happy ending. Here's all these nice colors, and it's a Disney movie. Uh, but it was a good good flick, good film. And I think particularly during the night of Passover, it shows the horror of the the angel of death, the destroyer going through doing what needs to be done to free the Israelites. And like, even if you're on the good side, it's still scary. Like it was probably my favorite scene in the movie, just how well it was done. Like the silence of the angel of death moving through the streets. I mean, it's a pretty brutal, I tweeted something and then deleted it this spring when COVID hit. And I was like, oh, we got the plague. And then there was like the murder hornets and the locusts in Africa. Like it really felt like we were kind of hitting all of the boxes. And then I didn't know how tasteful that joke was. So I deleted it. But the the Passover, you sit there and what you're dipping your finger in the wine to remember is like all of the awful things that happened. You've got death of the firstborn. You've got plague. You've got locusts. You've got frogs. You've got boils, which is disgusting. You've got like there plumes of smoke. Like everybody's getting smote all over the place. And um, when you kind of stop and think about it, you're like, oh my God, this is a dark time, which, you know, in my family, of course, then turn around and joke about like, okay, who's coming dressed as what next year? And someone's always like, I called death of the firstborn. <laughs> and you're all like kind of drunk. So everyone's laughing. But like, Did you guys have uh, the frog song too? Oh, I, yeah, yeah. There was a frog song. Well, how'd it go? No, what was the frog when, song? When the pharaoh woke up, there were frogs <laughs> yeah. in his bed. Frogs, <laughs> frogs, in, his yeah. frogs yeah. in his bed and frogs in his head. Yeah, yeah. Frogs here, frogs there. Frogs are jumping <laughs> everywhere. Nobody in my family is a composer. So, you know, it's not as good as Wilder's. Uh, <laughs> no, but... no, 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 no. I'm bringing that to the next one. That's incredible. And so my parents actually sometimes they're like, you can get these like at a party store, like these like cheap little plastic frogs and they just like throw them on, on the table. <laughs> all the kids. I love that. I will say the one I've always, and I think that I've kind of settled on this just being how I am, but I have a hard time being like a believer in every part of the Passover story, just how I am. And I, I've never tried to litigate it or anything like that because I don't know any better than anybody else. But one of the things that always struck me about the Passover story uh, and that made it maybe one of the things that made it hard for me to be fully bought in as a kid is that it all really sounds like something that you would write for a movie in the <laughs> 1990s. You know, like the plagues are all uh, extremely on the nose, uh, sometimes literally on you, the nose. You could use some bad CGI on the You could. And like sure. the way that the way that, the way that we get out of there with the, the sea opening up, you know, I've always, you know, is it possible that we just boated out of there uh, or, or something? I remember <laughs> like, Hebrew school. I don't know. 
I remember in Hebrew school, I had this like former, she was Israeli and she was like a very Israeli, like she spent like 10 years in the military, a teacher. And I just remember her yelling at us about how it could have happened because of tides on the Red Sea. And we're just all like, oh, there was always a person who said that. Rubenfeld. (laughs) I don't know. I have a very like non-literal interpretation of religion. I don't know how much of anything I think actually happened, but I think that there are some really good stories. And I think whoever you know put this one together was trying to be a screenwriter who just like maybe never made it in Babylon, thousand yeah. years ago yeah, yeah they were like well we don't know what movies are yet and this guy was like ah oh, i'm so ahead of my time i think they did make it yeah right yeah i mean this is this is uh the greatest story ever told well or is that another one of the bible ones i don't uh, know is, is that... isn't that like a college football thing? isn't that like what they say about the rose bowl or something that's the granddaddy of them all, <laughs> of them all. <laughs> <Sounds like that. laughs> what about yeah, no, um... i mean hey, yeah this person still getting movies made about his uh script um, you know, a lot of adapted screenplays off of this. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, and screenplay. the royalties are still hitting too. Yeah. Yeah. Every, every Saturday and Sunday in the pews. Yeah, you know, I, I don't take any of it literally, but you know, I have relatives who do take it literally, and after talking to them, it's like, yeah, I'm definitely taking this literal. No, I mean, listen, it is a guide for um, Bronze Age people. I, re- I read the Exodus chapters you're supposed to, and like, well, a lot more about goats in here than I remember. So it's like, <laughs> oh yeah, so, yeah. So it's like a guide for Bronze Age shepherds to try to like build something. I think it's, it's like you know, we just kind of keep on having to build off of what they did and these people weren't stupid i bet they were kind of like the first people to read this were like really the river turned to blood huh so um you know like i i don't you know who knows who has actually taken this literally of time but we got this thing the seder that's been going on for a while it's a good thing we got to keep it going we also jason emily i i don't know how much you wrote about elijah we have a ghost who comes to passover you literally you pour a glass of wine for elijah so you give him the shitty wine and you keep the good it's like the old cooking wine in the fridge that you have there um and you put it on the table and you go at a certain point and you just open the door and you're like come on in elijah and there's no one there and it's a ghost person this is what um, we do with santa claus so yeah i gotcha <laughs> yeah. that's true but he's like true. He is kind stuff, of our santa claus but santa claus like brings presents and leaves stuff elijah just shows up and then you're like did he drink the wine did he not drink somebody drank the wine like no <laughs> but see. something that, that's very interesting to me about Elijah is like you let him in but no one ever lets him out so is he just like in your house for a while after that he never leaves that's a pretty good deal for Elijah yeah Elijah gets so much cheap wine that night he's on the world's yeah. greatest bar crawl he really is and somehow after you put the wine out you know your Aunt Judy's always walking to the bathroom a few minutes later and when she comes back to the table <laughs> Elijah has somehow had the somehow had the wine you know it's, just, it's tremendous tremendous how he just has a nose for where to be I also wanted to ask y'all about like other holidays just for context, I was looking at the list of Christian holidays. Like, how many of these are really celebrated? Almost none of them I have celebrated. Advent and Holy Tuesday and the Feast of the Ascension and Pentecost. We, and we like, did do Advent, so I'm surprised you. Well, that. like, Pentecostal holidays are like, you got like Christmas, Easter, so you at the pole. <laughs> Not quite. I know what Advent is. Okay. You got, you got ba- I don't know Bama's, what Advent is either. Bama's spring game. That's when, uh, <laughs> see at the pole is when uh, all the Christian high schoolers go stand around the American flag and pray. Yeah. And it's like, oh, we're going to be so alone. No, you're not. This, it's, a, it's some made-up Protestant See you thing. at the pole? Yeah. Pole. Whoa. The, like the flag the pole. pole? You go stand around the American flag. Oh, I thought break. that was a Santa Claus joke. Oh, got it. Got it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I think that is if you are pole, truly guys. committed... <laughs> Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go eva- we're gonna go witness to Santa. We're gonna go on a mission trip to the North Pole. But anyway, there is a lot of Christian holidays that almost know nothing about. So like looking at the list of Jewish holidays, I'm like I'm sure half of these are like only for the very hardcore folks. But I did wonder, of 
other holidays besides Passover? Are there, you know, the ones that stand out most to you? Well, I would just say that Hanukkah is kind of the Jews version of a makeup call for Passover, which is like Passover is eight days of really roughing it on the dietary front, but for an extremely holy cause that is, you know, important to the fundamentals of the faith. Whereas Hanukkah is eight days of gifts that I'm pretty sure American Jews just kind of blew up because we felt bad we didn't have yes, Christmas. Hanukkah is uh, not that big of a deal. Not in that big of a deal. Yeah, I remember. Celebrated, but celebrated a lot. Probably celebrated by a hot, the highest percentage yeah, of well, Jews pretty much yeah, no, I, I remember when I was... Yeah, when I, when I was in college once, I remember um, I had a friend who she was like super, super Catholic and like didn't really know many Jews before she got to college. And so like she saw me walking around on Hanukkah and she's like, right on she's like, oh my God. I'm like, what? She's like, what are you doing here on Hanukkah? I'm like, going to school? <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, Hanukkah, yeah, it, it's theologically very not important, but to make it up to American kids for not getting Christmas, very important. I think in terms of the holidays, it definitely depends on on your family. I mean, my family was fairly religious. My grandfather and my mom, you know, my mom growing up, they celebrated most of them, you know, like, but for me growing up, it had sort of relaxed a little bit by then, but we always went to synagogue for Rosh Hashanah, for Yom Kippur. You know, we did Hanukkah every year. We had Passover. Uh, We didn't do Sukkot, but that was, you know, my mom grew up doing that. And then I think for my family, those were the big ones that we hit. My family was like uh, pretty observant you know obviously the biggies are Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah and and Passover those are the big three boom 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 um we also Sukkot uh was you know like we actually had on our deck built like a frame for Sukkot hut so we could basically Sukkot's our harvest festival the whole thing is like you eat outside and you celebrate a bountiful harvest so like we did that you know like Purim was a big deal at our synagogue there's always a big party for Purim and like the youth groups would always have have like a big Purim party. Yeah, there's like the minor stuff like Simchus Torah and Shavuot. So uh, yeah, no, like we had, like I I grew up in a pretty observant family. So I I did all of them, but Passover is the one that like really I remember doing the most. And Yom Kippur too, because Yom Kippur is just, it stinks um, and you hate it and you have to go through it. The two, my two favorites that are underrated ones that you've both mentioned, but I like them for different reasons. Sukkot, which is, it's the harvest festival and I'm not really entirely sure of the biblical origins because I'm again not that good of a Jew but it's like the world's greatest outdoor furniture holiday where mm-hmm. you yeah. it, there was usually like five or six guys from the synagogue who would like go around to different houses and help them build their uh, sukkahs which basically you would just lay long vegetation of some kind across the top of like a little hut and you could see the stars and eat in it which is great that sounds great and the Purim carnival was great because they would bring in like ski ball to the synagogue community room uh, <laughs> and and you know you'd have face painting and and sketch artists and that one was a blast and all i know about that one is that there was esther and the story of Purim is actually and haman and 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 how could we forget haman because haman is the bad guy but we have turned him into a tremendous pastry uh because <laughs> everything is cake I actually think if I, if I can present a, an alternate, I, Jews, our pastry game is far worse than other ethnicities. It might be true, but the hamantaschen is really good. It's yeah, fine. but also it's like, like it's it's very bready. It's not like lightened by anything. It's like a really thick. It kind of lies in your stomach. I mean, it like, depends you, though. Like my grandmother had these unbelievable Austrian pastry recipes. So I think I'm gonna, I'm like Aaron. Why don't you speak for your family? Because I'm sorry. Yeah, you know I I. Like you come from all these like really pro- like my family is 
all like the you know looking for like the people who came from the old countries like the equivalent of like you know we're Jewish rednecks basically we don't have anything good. Um, I have a fun Long Island or something. Or? Of Connecticut. Well, I mean, I grew up in Connecticut. Oh, it's close enough. Like, okay. When you said yeah, Jewish like, rednecks, I was thinking that's got to mean what Long Island? <laughs> yeah. No, I think that. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, you guys saw Uncut Gems. Uh, <laughs> no, no, but like I like coming from the old like nobody prominent family. Everyone. I have here. kind of a cool Esther Perm story, um, <laughs> which it's strange. I I like don't talk publicly that much about this i'm realizing because i don't know it doesn't come up that often in like college football um but my my grandfather one of the operas he composed was called esther and it was the story of purim it premiered in new york when i was like six and so we all went and i was like whoa this is a really cool story about this badass lady who saves her people you know after she's stuck marrying this idiot and that was a very cool i i the story for him needs to be told more than it is in in mainstream culture is my take i feel like if we had to have a jewish holiday go mainstream porn would be the one because it's like it happens like in february when like there's nothing really going on and it's basically just like a big party um like it's a big costume party in the middle of february i mean it's feb club basically it's like our carnival yeah kind of surprised it didn't go bigger because it has like those mainstream american pop culture staples of like your extremely distinct one bad dude and like your very yeah. nice like beautiful princess type woman who mm-hmm. like saves everything like i'm surprised that it has not gotten more traction and it will but i can't talk because i don't remember the story either i wonder if not being a super religious story i wonder if that affects things one way or the other like god doesn't do a whole ton in the story yeah so I don't know yeah doesn't come in into play that much (laughs) whereas like passover i feel like most like christians can vibe with that because it's like oh yes we have seen the charlton heston movie right and and you guys get a taste of uh angry old testament god like i mean he's he's on a war path uh, on passover for sure god isn't really god mode on porum yeah 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 yeah, yeah. no no god in porum he's like you guys got this all right cool it's a little later in the book when he's learned that like the kids can watch themselves sometimes he he has learned to death delegate <laughs> yeah one thing i like and it's about... the and the ladies pick up the slack of the group project they so. usually that's probably what it is it's a lady story that's probably why it hasn't caught on right yes, yeah that i think more... that's what it is if you make it about mordecai instead of esther then it catches on. <laughs> i like the uh so like the jewish holiday calendar th- there's a lot of different stories and different stuff you got some exodus some esther some maccabees you got like stuff that's not even in the, the protestant Bible. there's so much different stuff whereas the christian calendar is just like Jesus, 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 Jesus. You know, there's nothing long lasting cultural. There's no connection to a specific group of people. There's nothing like beyond national about it. It's just here's another story about Jesus. But yeah, I, I guess this is a thing I'm a little bit jealous about, about like the, the list of Jewish holidays. There's so many different points of entry, you know, like so many different stories to, to connect with. Do they do flashback stories with Jesus in his seasons? What, what, what do you mean? <laughs> like in the, in the New Testament, do they like tell you, go back at all? Uh, or well, they tell you the exact same story four clock. different ways all in a row. <laughs> Not really in flashback. It was the original like, Rashomon. Like the majority of Jesus' <laughs> life has been cut out of the New Testament even. Yeah, you're, you're going to get like, he was a baby and then boom, he was being man. murdered four times See, that's in so interesting because I realized that it's strange because I think when living in America and in, you know, a mainstream Christian society, for the most part, you kind of think that you've just gotten it by osmosis. But then I stop and think about it and I'm like, I've been to a church maybe twice. I couldn't tell. I have no idea what happens in the New Testament besides Jesus. Jesus 
dies. And like, I really am completely clueless. So now that okay. I'm thinking about it, I'm like, yeah, what is like Ecclesiastes, like John three, like who are these? Like, what that is so wild sounds like you have to listen to the vacation Bible. School yeah. I think I do. I think this podcast is for me. Yeah. We'll get there. This, this we'll get there in like, like six years. Yeah. We'll get there eventually. <laughs> no, because I grew up in like a pretty Jewish town, like in high school, they're like, we're making you read the new Testament, like in English class. They're like, you, it's like, this is stuff you need to know. <laughs> like you're going to go out into the world. You're going to leave this little cocoon and people are going to say stuff like the garden of Gethsemane. You got to know what they're talking about. I got, no idea. I got handed last year. My girlfriend is Christian and I went to Christmas Eve church for started into a church service last year. I was handed one of the cookies. Sack. Jesus. Wait for it. Oh, wait for it. Thank, thank you. Okay. I, I could have, I might as well have been holding like an ancient scroll that was found in a bottle at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> Apparently this is a very common thing. Like, and you know, Christian Christianity is obviously the dominant faith in this country. And you would think that just from watching enough Christmas movies, you would get all of the issue. And no, absolutely did not know anything. <laughs> uh, felt very out of my depth. Uh, so we've got to do a better job too of, uh, of watching the later seasons. Uh, yes. We, well, it's our, like our, in our Christianity. characters went out, but you know, <laughs> well, like in Christianity, you have like, you know, the nativity story and it's this very, very contained thing. But then you add on, you know, Santa and like you add on all that stuff. And then you add on, at least when I was growing up, if you had a nativity story, the entire pageant would continue through the crucifixion and the resurrection. Basically, we have like six different holidays that are all about the exact same thing, which is the entire life of Jesus. That is wild. I'm, I, yeah, except for the like 30 years. I guess I sort of picked up on that on some level, but I went to a few Christmases with an ex-boyfriend's family and we went to the midnight mass or or maybe it was a 10 o'clock I don't know it was late and I was like what are you guys doing like we do not like you go to synagogue and you either eat before at 4 30 or you eat after at like 8 30 depending if it's Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah but like we are not hanging out there at midnight and I actually found it very moving and kind of cool but also I was just confused the entire time <laughs> whenever I've been to a church service I'm just amazed at how easy it is like I grew up having to go to like these two hour services and like Hebrew a lot and just like being so bored and it's like I go to like even like I've been to like a Catholic mass at a wedding and like it took like 45 minutes I'm like fuck oh, this is easy they did Vatican too <laughs> this was here. we learned Come this on. from uh, we had on Ryan Nanny and Michael Felder for like a Catholic Protestant convention and like the takeaway was that the Catholics just get things done whereas Protestants we will be there all day yeah well and even <laughs> really yeah oh yes yeah if church is supposed to end at noon depending on like what was going on or if there was like a guest speaker you could be there till like 2 30 yeah it, it was it was not uncommon growing up to like church for that to be like 8 a.m to like 2 and then you're back at 6 and, and growing up for us wow. for, for myself that's like we, orthodox like we were there for sunday morning like sunday school and then we had regular service and then we went home i grew up nazarene so we would call it our nazarene nap because we were exhausted by that point and then we would turn around a couple hours later and go back for sunday night service what you had two wow. you had i mean it i guess is. that's I'm, I'm acting like that's crazy but like you know you go to synagogue all day and yom kippur you're supposed to but this was this was like every sunday you oh, do yeah. that oh, yeah. yeah yeah there's wow. a lot of church and there content. was no children's church on sunday nights you had to be in big church listening to all the boring <laughs> stuff oh yeah how long was sunday night church it wasn't as long it was like 
like between one and two hours, but still, that's pretty long. I, I've yeah. never gotten the full like the the deep experience. I yeah, they I guess I've only seen like the training wheels. Most churches these days don't seem to have Sunday night services frequently. Like all the here is so different than when where I grew up. Also, because I grew up going to a church of like two hundred people, whereas like the church that he grew up in, I went there and there's like ten thousand people, and like literally they have escalators in the church. <laughs> ten thousand people? Do you mean nine thousand plus another thousand? Yeah. At one. Was this like, like Righteous Gemstones Church? Yeah. Wow. Like, like you could have a Kentucky UNC basketball game in the sanctuary. It's like, insane. Oh my god. Yeah. So my church That's experience is very different than cool his, though. but most of the churches around here anymore that I've noticed don't really do the whole Sunday night thing. They're very like modern. Sunday well, Sunday I, I, Sunday I, I take that back. You guys uh, had. I mean, I thought two hours on Saturday, two hours on Sunday was bad. I thought Jesus had a tough because like Hebrew school and stuff. Yeah, Hebrew you, school is just like that. You, you guys are playing a varsity game well i think like, i think oh, the thing is like if you're comparing it to catholics which is you know the majority of christian are catholics yeah. and like those folks get it done in that regard that would have been pretty nice <laughs> well and then we would we would go back on wednesday night too so that was our third night of what, what was it about wednesday was that just bible that study? was usually youth group okay. so that was like we'd have our youth pastor instead of the main pastor and he would lead a service and it was more of like a, a bonding time that's when we would teens. that's when we would alex we would so to speak we would hide the matzo ball and everyone would go <laughs> find it it's when you do that type of stuff. <laughs> that was like a relaxed church, so you could wear jeans to that church. Now everyone wears jeans to church, but back then, no. You wore your Sunday best, and then Wednesday night you could wear jeans. Another thing wow. that didn't become clear to me until all too recently in life was that Sunday best, that means you'd wear nice stuff to church, and that was not an ice cream company. Mm. Uh, <laughs> like, like, I mean, I'm not going to say it was in like the last year or so, but like, <laughs> But like, but like, but it was, like, like it's okay. I was well into teen years and like possibly into my twenties before I realized that your Sunday best. Like I think I thought that that was like a term for like a football player who has a great game. Sunday best. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it can be. Could be. You can use it as <laughs> could that. Be. Sure. Could be. Ignorance is, is horrific. To get you folks out of here, by any chance, does anybody have like a closeout story from a Jewish holiday? I can share one that exemplifies the challenges of being a, a young American Jew who really likes sports. That the high holidays one year fell on... I think a Saturday and a Sunday, or maybe it was a Sunday and a Monday. The point is that they definitely fell on a Sunday, and the Steelers had a big game. It was, you know, September, the season starting. This is back, you know, when the Steelers are, you know, still good. Roethlisberger's first couple of years in the team, and I'm 12 or 13, very into these things. The worst thing that ever happened to me as far as my relationship with my faith was the year that I was not allowed to watch the Steelers after services on like Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur because our Orthodox cousins were in town. And for some reason, it was it was not permissible to, to have electricity going on the high holiday. Or maybe, maybe it was a Saturday and so it was Shabbat and that's why we couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I actually had a, a real come to, uh, come to Judaism. <laughs> come to Judaism moment uh, when my dad let me sneak upstairs uh, to watch the Steelers and Bengals. Wow, it really is sad when you say it out loud. Uh, oh my God. Oh my God. Um, eating matzo ball soup uh, and talking about whatever the, the day's you know lessons were from the service while blissfully watching the Steelers play the Bengals. From that point on, I decided that services were okay and I was going to do my best to make a, a strong effort. So both my sisters had their bot mitzvahs during no notable sporting events. My middle sister had hers the same night that UConn men's basketball played in the semifinal year they beat Duke to win the championship. My family's from Connecticut. My uncle went to UConn. He actually brought like a portable, so like our, we had our bar mitzvahs at our synagogue, which had like this big event space. We, there's a 
there's like a stage area. So like my uncle and I watched the UConn win that semifinal against Ohio State backstage at my sister's bat mitzvah. And then um, and then my other sister, uh, her bat mitzvah was during the uh, the Yankees playing the Athletics, and that was the Derek Jeter flip game. Um, and so I saw that play on like again, this is 2001, so no smartphones. But our next, so I grew up in Connecticut, so my next door neighbor worked at ESPN, and he had a handheld portable TV that I remember we were watching in the parking lot and I saw Derek Jeter do the flip on like a six inch screen uh, on that thing that my ESPN neighbor had and so um, you know sports finds a way sports <laughs> finds a way I just have to ask did you guys feel like you were more prepared for like wedding season in your like 20s or 30s because you went through bar mitzvah season having a different uh, a different event to go to every weekend and then a party at night yeah yeah, yeah I it's, felt uh, completely prepared I was like oh we got this I have studied the party starters I am ready to bring it so what do you do when they're like competing bar mitzvahs in the same Hebrew school class there wouldn't normally be but sometimes across town there would be and I guess that would be some that would be it would be kind of a a high society drama there you know between the varying socialites of the Hebrew school class who's going to go to which I I think that like all the parents in your grade I think there's like a count like they try to spread things out so that no there are no conflicts but yeah I I remember just like my bar mitzvah was one it was literally like every weekend that month because my birthday's over the summer and they don't like doing bar mitzvahs over the summer so they just like crammed us all into September and so like (laughs) so like that September just every weekend it was a different bar mitzvah that you were going to so yeah it's definitely good wedding prep mine was June we convinced them to do a summer one which was nice um but my still like in school though like they don't like doing it when people aren't because my birthday's in August yeah 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 that's fair my sort of Jewish sports moment um, was when it, it wasn't sort of anything conflicting with the service, but I like really loved when players were Jewish and especially when baseball players were Jewish because that was my favorite sport growing up. And um, when Gabe Kapler in the 2004, when he was on the Red Sox and they had that, you know, it was obviously the first World Series, but it was this incredible run and they had a game on Yom Kippur. Gabe asked a local rabbi, he was like, I don't know, should I play? Like, what's the deal here? Is it? And the, the rabbi said, look, we need all the help we can get against this curse. So like... <laughs> It would actually be like, it would be a good thing if you, a good move as a Jew, if you did this. And from then on, my mom and I were just like, oh, we are all in on Gabe. I remember I had a conflict one year, a baseball game on some holiday or another one year, one of the high holidays, or maybe it was a hockey game because that the time of year that would make more sense. My parents would not let me play and their justification was that Sandy Koufax skipped the World Series game because of like, <laughs> Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah. Yeah, but he and was like, harder. He could just go right, the next one. Right, you know? this right. exactly. It's a around. rotation ridiculous yeah i was I, I mean my my team surely needed me more than the dodgers needed sandy definitely Kirsch, for sure <laughs> Excellent. This was very fun. Thank you all. Thank you yeah, all for coming on. Thank you uh, for inconvening us, Jason. <laughs> yeah, this was fun. Yeah, Thanks. this was so fun. I just realized that counting you three and Roger Sherman, most of our guests to this point have been Jewish. Yes. We, we also did have five <laughs> children on, but they have not yet reached the age of accountability. They are still virtuous pagans, according to <laughs> made-up Christian stuff that's not in the Bible. You, but... You, you, but you only have half the Bible to use us for. We're useless for the second. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's yeah. when it'll be really fun to have people on that aren't familiar with it because it'll be like wait what yeah yeah we'll we'll bring y'all on for one of the really weird parts of the gospels we'll do that yeah